0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Mia, I'm a producer at the Institute of Art and Ideas.
2: And my name's Charlie and I'm a senior producer here at the IAI.
1: So today we've got The Quest for Freedom, featuring the Associate Director of the Rights Lab and Law and Policy Professor at the University of Nottingham, Dr. Katrina Schwartz. This took place in 2023 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Charlie, tell us a bit more about this
2: talk. This talk sheds light on slavery in the present day and explores how we can free the oppressed. But it also talks about a kind of terrifying modern statistic of today, which is despite thinking that things have generally got better in all facets of life, there are the highest amounts of people in slavery as an absolute figure than at any point in human history.
1: So how does this talk change the way we think about slavery today?
2: Well, I think it sheds light on the fact that slavery exists along a continuum and it's not just a narrow conception of what we think it is. So African-American slavery in the 1800s and some, some parts of the 1900s, as terrible as that was, and that probably represents the absolute most brutal end of slavery, we also have more modern ideas of slavery, whether it be the exploitation of workers, whether it be slavery but seen in a religious Catholic setting, or just any other forms that we weren't aware of. And it's important when we think about these things, not just to think about what we've been taught from history, but have a very open mind and perspective to other forms of what this practice might entail.
1: Don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
2: Now, it's time to welcome Katrina Schwartz to Philosophy for Our Times.
3: Thanks so much, everyone. Before I begin, I do want to give just a, a small content warning. I am going to be discussing discussing contemporary forms of slavery. They are fairly severe human rights abuses. I'm not going to go into the specific details of any individual survivor's story, but I will be providing illustrative examples of the kinds of practices that are included within the umbrella of modern slavery. It is a serious topic, and, it, and sometimes it can hit you even if you know it's coming. When we think about the concept of slavery, a fairly clear picture emerges. The slavery you've seen on TV and in the movies, the slavery you might have read about in history books, the slavery commemorated in museums, the slavery you may have been taught about in schools. It's a very specific phenomenon. Maybe it's hands bound in shackles, maybe it's bodies packed together on the floor of a ship's hold. Maybe it's toiling on a field with the crack of a whip whistling overhead. The spectre of transatlantic enslavement looms large, and understandably so. 12.5 million people forcibly displaced from their homes to be shipped across the ocean on a brutal voyage that would claim the lives of two million human beings before they even made it to foreign shores. And the legacies of that system are alive today. Enslavers and the people they enslaved built the modern Western world. And the broken promise of emancipation and reformation continues to shape all of our lives. But it's also important to understand that this image of slavery is specific and contextualized in a time and in a place. And yet, it's not the only time in human history that a group of people decide that they could treat another as if they were less than human and exploited them as if they were property. Slavery infuses our human history. As far back as written records extend, human beings have enslaved one another. From ancient Greece, Rome, and the Near East, to the Sasanian, Abyssinian, and Akkadian empires, From the first global economies in the Indian Ocean and Asian worlds to early Islamic law, Hindu Rajas, medieval Korea, and early Christianity, systems of enslavement are well documented. With such a long and storied history, it's really no surprise that slavery continues to be found in our world today, and it has many faces. There is no single image of enslavement in our contemporary world. In abstract terms, modern slavery is a term used to describe a set of practices, each of which is connected to the core of slavery and international law, and each of which involves severe human exploitation and dehumanization. We have slavery itself, not only chattel slavery that defines a human being, as property in law, but also de facto slavery where the same relationship and behaviors manifests without the protections of law. And then we also have forced labor, that is work or service exacted under menace of penalty for which a person has not offered themselves voluntarily. We have servitude, which is an exacerbated form of of forced labor somewhere between forced labor and slavery, debt bondage, where a person is bound to work to repay a debt, but the conditions of the debt are such that it can never be repaid and they are forced to work in perpetuity and they cannot leave. We have forced marriages, where people are forced or coerced into a marriage against their will and often forced to labour and sexually exploited in that context. And finally, human trafficking, where people are recruited, transported, transferred, harboured or received through coercive means for the purpose of exploitation. In more concrete terms, modern slavery is a young man in Brazil, promised a decent job to help feed his family, trafficked onto an agricultural plantation, fenced and locked in, held at gunpoint, forced into hard labor, 17, 18, 20 hours a day and fed with the pigs. It's a child in the Philippines being abused by a family member live-streamed for the sexual gratification of paedophiles in North America, Europe, and Australia. It's a woman in Bangladesh working grindingly long hours for very little pay in unsafe conditions so that multinational companies can churn out ever-cheaper garments for the fast fashion mill. It's a man in Libya being sold on an auction block. It's a Yazidi woman forced into a marriage with a man that killed everyone she knew. It's a child being forced into a battle. And it's not something that's only happening far away from you. It's a 13-year-old boy in Manchester, forced by criminal organisations to traffic drugs across county lines with no way to escape and no choice under threat and coercion. It's a young woman in Birmingham whose family are forcing her into a marriage with a man 20 years older than her that she doesn't know and forced into a life of domestic servitude and coerced sex. It's a migrant worker who came to the UK on a promise of a decent legal job, forced under threat of violence to him and his family to cultivate cannabis, working for no pay, held in inhuman conditions, and told if he goes to the police, they will send him to prison. It's 122,000 lives in this country, and 50 million people around the world. Human beings exploited as if they were property, and treated as if they were disposable. Slavery touches all of our lives in many different ways. It's in our towns and in our cities, it's in our factories and on our farms. In every 550 people in this country, there is a person in modern slavery. It's also that we estimate, that we think we know about. It's also in many of the things we buy, use, wear and eat. The UK imports about 21 billion pounds worth of goods at high risk of having been produced using forced labour in only their top five high-risk imports. That's garments, electronics, fish, textiles and timber. There are many more products and commodities that we import, as well as services that we offshore, that are also at risk. And this is a tricky one, because the growth in consumer culture, demand for goods and increasing globalisation of our trade and supply chains have both positive and negative impacts. On the one hand, it can help to fuel development and innovation, bring critical new income streams to people in developing country and ultimately increase quality of life. But on the other hand, it can lead to exploitation and abuse, as well as environmental degradation. How does this work? Let's think about just one high-risk product, the clothing that all of us are wearing, because this is not a nudist festival. There are risks of modern slavery at every stage in the garment supply chain, from growing and producing raw materials, to processing these into textiles, to manufacturing. And we can start at the very far end of the supply chain, with raw materials. Let's look at the shirt you're wearing, the shirt you're wearing, things that most people in this room are wearing which involve cotton. Cotton production in many countries is heavily implicated in both forced labor and child labor. China is now the single largest producer of cotton in the global economy. 5.9 million metric tons in the 2021 to 22 crop year. About 90% of China's cotton is now produced in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, where the Chinese government has instituted a system of repression, including crimes against humanity and human rights abuses against the Uyghur, Kazakh, and other predominantly Muslim ethnic minority populations. The government has detained millions of Uyghurs and subjected them to forced labor, predominantly in the production of tomatoes, polysilicon, and cotton. And it's not just a China problem. Forced labour in cotton production has also been found in Benin, Burkina Faso, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, some of the largest cotton producers in the world. Cotton, then, needs to be processed. Raw cotton is ginned, spun, and woven into the textiles that make up our clothes. And here, cotton from multiple sources is combined into a single fabric, making it very difficult to ensure that cotton from a particular high-risk context has not made its way into the cotton being produced for your garments. And then there's an additional risk of exploitation in this stage. A lot of the textile production is also done in Xinjiang, under the same system of forced labor under which the cotton is produced. And in many other Asian and Pacific countries, Textile production is subcontracted to home-based workers without formal contracts, which makes them vulnerable and one more step removed from oversight in the supply chain. With tight turnaround times and tiny profit margins, the risk of exploitative working conditions is high. In India, a practice known as sumangali is employed, where women and girls are offered employment in spinning mills with payment in a lump sum at the very end of their contract. They are then subjected to restrictions on their movement, forced to work long hours, exposed to physical and sexual abuse, and unable to leave before their contract ends without risking losing their entire earnings. Textiles are then manufactured into garments. This can also take place through these informal subcontracted home-based work, without formal contracts, making people at risk of exploitation. And garment factories in many different countries subject workers, predominantly women and girls, to exploitative working conditions and unsafe environments. Workers in Ethiopia were found to be earning as little as 12 cents an hour, in addition to then experiencing wage deductions as punishment, verbal abuse, and forced overtime. And although we started at the very far end of the supply chain, the pressures that drive these exploitative conditions come from much closer to home. The brands trying to cater to rapidly changing consumer preferences make unrealistic and inappropriate demands of suppliers, pressuring them to deliver faster and at lower cost. This pressures the suppliers to reduce their labour costs and increase working hours, exacerbating the risk of labour abuse. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw extreme examples of brands cancelling orders for products that had already been manufactured and refusing to pay. So the workers were dismissed, denied payment for the work that they had already completed for a Western brand, and ultimately wages were driven even further down and working conditions worsened. There are a lot of power imbalances and asymmetrical relationships in global supply chains. These imbalances perpetuate a system that allows significant profits to be generated, mostly at the top, while the same entities that hoard this profit drive a race to the bottom at every subsequent step in the supply chain. Primark reported an operating profit of £756 million in 2022. Sheen, the new online fashion giant, reported profit of about US dollars in 2022 and $1.1 billion in 2021. If just a fraction of that profit was shared across the supply chain instead of hoarded by investors, it could make a substantial difference in the lives of people working at every stage of production. And I should say it's not just low-cost brands that are implicated in this. Prada scored only 5 out of 100 on Know The Chain's fashion and apparel benchmark, and yet they registered a profit of €465 million in 2022. We talked about the exploitation that went into making your pockets. Now let's talk about the exploitation that goes into the thing that lives in your pocket, your phone. Phones are a much more complicated supply chain. Because of the constituent parts that go into it, there are very many, and they're very complicated. So I'm just going to talk about one. In everyone's phone in this room, there is a lithium-ion rechargeable battery. They're also inside our tablets, laptops, electric cars, And inside every single lithium-ion battery on the planet is a substance called cobalt. The majority of the world's cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a vast country in the middle of Africa, 11 times the size of Great Britain. And we're not talking about a little bit more cobalt than anywhere else. We're talking about 70% of the entire world's cobalt production in 2022. And this isn't likely to change anytime soon, because it's estimated that 50% of the entire world's cobalt reserve resides in this one country. Some of this is produced in large industrial mines, where at least some safeguards exist. But up to 30% of the cobalt mined in the DRC is produced in small-scale artisanal mines. And it's here that the stark human costs emerge. Hundreds of thousands of people in the DRC have been displaced and their communities bulldozed to make way for these large industrial mining concessions. An entire population with nowhere to go, no options and no alternatives but to turn to these small-scale artisanal mines with are forced to work in extremely hazardous conditions for less than a dollar or two a day, making painful decisions about whether they send their children to school or bring them to work in the mines so that they make enough to eat. In some cases, armed forces and militias and paramilitary groups are abducting and trafficking children to work in these mines, or menacing people to remain producing in the mines and taking some of the profit. Cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe, but thousands of men, women and children are working in these mines with no protective gear. Young mothers with babies strapped on their backs, breathing in toxic dust. And at any moment, the walls of an open-air mine could collapse and an avalanche of gravel could crush arms, legs and spines. Or an entire tunnel mine could collapse, burying everyone inside alive. And while this is the reality for thousands of people mining cobalt, Apple reported $99.8 billion in profit in 2022. Every product has a price. And right now, millions of people are subsidising our consumption and companies' profits with their suffering and with their lives. As it stands, slavery seems baked into the system. But it doesn't have to be. There's a tendency to think maybe global production requires some level of exploitation. Maybe not slavery but maybe not decent work for everyone. But once you accept exploitative work, you're opening the door for these kinds of conditions to exist. You're accepting them. And when you put that abuse in the context of the scale of profits that these multinational corporations are making, it doesn't feel so necessary. Only a fraction of those profits need to channel down the supply chain in order to eradicate this extreme exploitation from the system. And there's also a few more things that give us a bit of hope here. First, an increasing number of corporations are stepping up and trying to lead a race to the top, creating sustainable supply chains and a new business model that doesn't rely on exploitation of human beings or the degradation of the environment. Tony's Chocoloni is producing slave-free chocolate. Fairphone is making smartphones and headphones that are both socially and environmentally sustainable. An increasing number of products are joining sustainable certification schemes like fair trade that increase oversight and accountability. And none of these mechanisms is perfect, but they are looking and they are trying and they are working to eradicate that exploitation. To the extent possible, we should support these efforts. We vote with our wallets. And the more that we can pressure companies we buy from to stop trading in human suffering, the better. But it might be a relief to everyone in this room to know that the responsibility for eliminating forced labour and modern slavery and supply chains does not all rest with you and the decisions you make at the checkout. We are all busy people with busy lives, and frankly, it would be impossible in our current modern world with global supply chains the way that they are to completely eliminate modern slavery in our purchasing. Yeah. There aren't always sustainable options on the shelf. Options aren't always affordable for people on constrained incomes. Companies are not generally very transparent about their supply chains, nor do they necessarily undertake robust efforts to address risks or even to identify those risks, and not all products and services that include risks of exploitation are consumer goods. Not to mention just the insane amount of time it takes to make these careful decisions on every single product. Took me three hours just to pick a bank. I can't do that with every single product that I buy. So like I said, it's not all on you. Governments and international institutions are beginning to step up and demand that companies take action to eradicate slavery from their supply chains. France, the Netherlands, and Germany have all enacted due diligence laws that require companies to look for human rights risks in their supply chain and to address them when they find them and prevent and mitigate those risks. The EU is poised to pass the most far-reaching human rights due diligence legislation ever that will cover all EU member states. And I have to tell you, the UK is starting to fall behind. In 2015, we were ahead and leading most other countries in the world when we passed the transparency law. But transparency is no longer enough, and it's time for us to catch up to our counterparts. The UK government has promised that they will introduce changes to this legislation, We're waiting. Really, as other countries leap forward, we need to have a more meaningful approach to addressing abuses. And if you feel like writing to your MP and saying, I thought we were waiting on that modern slavery supply chains law, where is it? Go ahead and do that. And lastly, all this is happening in the context of a growing global anti-slavery movement A global community of people fighting for freedom for the 50 million people enslaved and the many more facing extreme risk. The global anti-slavery movement is larger and more coordinated than ever before in human history. We can press a button and be face-to-face with someone fighting slavery in Cameroon, Colombia, Cambodia, Canada, or Croydon. We are more connected, our lives are more connected, and so our anti-slavery is so much more connected. We can work together in ways that we never could before to leverage our knowledge, skills, experience, and the lessons we've learned to help identify people being subjected to exploitation, support them out of that situation and into safety, meet their immediate needs, provide care for their long-term recovery, and support them into a sustainable freedom. Research and data can help drive this revolution helping us to understand what works and why, so that we can scale up and scale out our interventions to reach more and more people and ensure that what we do is effective. And the voices of those with lived experience of modern slavery are at the heart of this new anti-slavery movement. Survivors of slavery have always been champions of freedom. Since slavery began, the people subjected it to have resisted their enslavers, fighting not only for their own liberation, but for the fundamental humanity of everyone treated as if they were property. And if you've learned about the transatlantic system, you may be familiar with the names of freedom fighters like Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Nat Turner, and the crucial role these figures played in overthrowing the systems of slavery in which they live. Our current anti-slavery movement has many Frederick Douglases and many Harriet Tubman's. Survivors today are taking their place as the anti-slavery leaders of our present and of our futures. Not only are they the CEOs of global anti-slavery organizations, researchers, funders, lawyers, care providers, advocates, but they're also helping to organize coalitions of survivors around the world, building communities to help foster recovery and advocate for change. And this is so critical, not only because of the incredible potential knowledge and skills that survivors possess, but also because of the unique understanding of the dynamics of enslavement that comes from their lived experience. By building an integrated and intersectional anti-slavery movement, survivor-centered and survivor-led, we're crafting a more effective anti-slavery than ever before. We're at the precipice of something monumental. We have, perhaps, the potential to eradicate slavery everywhere in the world for the first time in human history, And we're also learning lessons from the anti-slavery and abolitionist movements of the past. Because just as slavery has existed for thousands of years, so too has anti-slavery. Throughout human history, people have resisted and fought against enslavement. While many people paint abolitionism as some feature of modernity arising sometime in the 18th and 19th centuries in response to the transatlantic system of chattel enslavement, abolitionism, like slavery, has a long history. The claim that the British Abolition of the Slave Trade Act made Britain the first country in the world to abolish the slave trade, it's a fairly common refrain in British politics, is not only incorrect because the Haitian Revolution overthrew slavery several years earlier, but also because countries have been going about abolishing slavery for millennia. The Xin Dynasty in ancient China abolished slavery in the years nine to 12 AD. Debt slavery was abolished in ancient Athens six centuries earlier. In the 900s, enslaved persons were freed on a wide scale in the Korean Koryo Kingdom and slave trade was banned in the City Republic of Venice. In the 1100s, Norman England, the 1200s, the island of Kuchula, the Holy Roman Empire, Bologna, Norway, in the 1500s, in the Philippines, Lithuania and Japan. That is to say that societies and states have been abolishing slavery well before the transatlantic system was created or abolished. But abolition didn't always last. Political leaders and contexts changed. Societies were born, reformed, overturned and overtaken. And the driving ideologies and principles underpinning society also changed. And so the history of slavery and abolition is not a linear journey not a simple story of moral progress. It's complicated, it's messy, and sometimes it moves in the wrong direction. And the reason it's so important for us to recognise this is that it can be easy to assume that progress is an inevitable march forward. That the fight against slavery for the recognition of fundamental human rights and for the protection of vulnerable populations continues over time to move forward, even if it's doing so slowly. Not only is this not something we should take for granted because history has shown us we can roll back on rights, protections, and recognition, we also shouldn't assume it because our current world is revealing a tapestry of trends that present a real risk to our progress on anti-slavery. By understanding how anti-slavery ideals have degraded in the past, we can better understand our current reality. From 2015 to 2021, The Global Slavery Index estimates that the number of people globally enslaved increased by 25 percent – 10 million more people enslaved than there were in 2015. This is because of what we like to call the three C's – COVID, conflict and climate change. Anti-slavery is an intersectional challenge that we have to adopt an intersectional approach to address, and that's where we're going now. Integrating anti-slavery considerations into every single development intervention that takes place on the planet, not only the ones specifically targeting trafficking. Thinking about anti-slavery and our supply chains and our products and our trade relationships and in our investment treaties. Everywhere that you interact with human beings, you think about slavery. And by building anti-slavery considerations into all of these efforts, we increase the efficacy of our global anti-slavery. It's wishful thinking to believe our society is incapable of backsliding on our anti-slavery commitments. History from at least 600 BC to yesterday tells us that it is entirely possible for states to commit themselves to abolition, to human freedom and to fundamental rights and to go back on those promises and ideals. Progress is not an inevitable march forward. We can see countries, including our own, making promises and undertaking obligations that they then fail to fulfill. We can see countries, including our own, introducing and reforming areas of law and policy, like immigration policy, that makes people more vulnerable to exploitation and fails to then build safeguards into the system that will protect them from that. But we can also see, better than we ever could before, a truly global anti-slavery movement capable of grappling with these intersectional challenges. A movement based not on internal action within a single country, but on universal commitment to the most fundamental of rights for all people. We can see a new wave of anti-slavery led by the people that have survived some of the worst abuses that can be perpetrated by human beings. Survivors fighting for freedom for themselves, for their communities, and for the entire world. And we're all a part of making sure that this movement continuously improves simply by caring about the quality of evidence underpinning our actions and doing what we can to improve it. We're all a part of the effort to make sure that progress on anti-slavery continues to march forward. And how incredible that every single one of us can be part of this monumental movement to help millions of people out of bondage and build a slavery-free Future. Thanks.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit Iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.